Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitlow. And this is episode 34 for our series in 2014. And today's date is Friday, the 5th of September. And Leon, what's on the menu this week? Well, we have an absolutely terrific interview with the Survey Monkey General Manager, all the way from Silicon Valley, Brent Chidoba. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. They're setting up in uh, Australia. That's right. That's right. And it's it's amazing what SurveyMonkey offers. I mean, they survey all your market for you and they find you answers. They do market analysis for you. It's a very good service and not all that expensive. No, well, some of it's uh, free. Some of, some of it's a freemium model. and it's uh, So he talks about that. So let's now talk to Brent Chidoba. Brent Chidoba, tell us about SurveyMonkey. SurveyMonkey is the world's leading online survey platform. So it's a tool used to create, distribute, and analyze surveys. And the company's been around for about 15 years uh, and was one of the first online uh, software-as-a-service subscription tools. What, who are the companies that use it? All companies. Uh, SurveyMonkey's customer base is one of the, the most broad in the world. We've got uh, 100% of the Fortune 500 have accounts. Um, 99% have paid accounts for our product. We have about half of our our business from government, nonprofits, and public sector. Uh, education's a big area where people at universities, professors, uh, administrators use the tool. And then a lot of businesses, people in marketing departments, um, sales departments, PR, HR. There's a lot of pretty much any vertical within a company has a use for gathering feedback from customers, employees, and things like that. How big a database is it? In terms of total users or total, yeah, all the data we collect? To- in, in ter- well, first of all, in terms of total users. So to date, over 20 million people have signed up to be SurveyMonkey subscribers. Now that's 15 years of data. So there's, um, we've obviously accelerated over time and not all of those users are active today. Um, but a huge percentage of the internet population has tried out creating a survey. Uh, and then on the flip side, every day there's more than 2 million people that will take a SurveyMonkey survey. And they're answering all sorts of different questions on all sorts of different topics. So when we think of database, that's the toughest job at SurveyMonkey is managing the massive store of data and all of the insights that customers are using every day. And the customers develop their own surveys? Yes. So customers, we, we operate a do-it-yourself platform. So customers can sign up, create and write their own questions, distribute them to their audiences or use our targeted audience product. Uh, we also have a lot of tips and resources to help people construct great questions and surveys and things like that if, it, if they're kind of new to survey creation. Which is perfect for a company trying to identify the market. It is great for companies identifying the market. Um, it is, it's a great way to actually reach outside of your own database to understand what others are thinking who may not be using your product. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to do it, whether it's your own email list, putting links on a website, using social distribution mechanisms and things like that. Tell us about SurveyMonkey Audience. So SurveyMonkey Audience is a product we launched in 2011. We had a lot of SurveyMonkey customers over the first um, you know, 10 to 12 years of our existence asking us for help finding respondents. So if it was a, a marketer looking for maybe a group of people that did not subscribe to their service or purchase their product, um, they might want to talk to people of a competing product, someone who... Um, you know, doesn't, you know, buys a different type of product that they may want to market toward. Um, so what we did was build out a database of respondents that pe- that were people that wanted to take surveys. Uh, and so we have about, in the United States, about 3 million people have opted in to take surveys, and we let our customers actually target those people. Um, so it's a product that allows any company, big or small, to have access to really quality insights and 
um, unbiased data and, and new respondents. We've just actually launched that product in Australia. It was our first market outside the U.S. We started recruiting people to take surveys about two months ago, um, and we have our customer launch coming up very shortly uh, where we can actually let any Australian business or nonprofit or educational institution come to us and ask for help finding respondents, and we can deliver people throughout the country. Why Australia? So Australia is one of SurveyMonkey's best markets. Um, the the largest markets for SurveyMonkey in terms of paid users and free users and just general survey activity. Uh, it starts with the U.S., which is where the company started. The U.K., Canada, and Australia are our next biggest markets. The reason being um, friendliness with the English language, comfortable with uh, the U.S. dollar. In 2009, SurveyMonkey began translating its website, offering new payment methods, uh, but a lot of those English-speaking markets were still the strongest. Uh, one interesting thing with Australia was that we saw that the percentage of the internet population that subscribes to SurveyMonkey was actually higher than in the United States. Um, so it is a very, very friendly market for us. We've seen a lot of internet companies see a similar dynamic. So when we were looking at markets to launch audience in, which is a very complex product to launch because we have to build survey respondents first, then the customer demand and educate the market. Um, we just thought of it as a very logical place. Um, and it was a place where we wanted to put a lot of resources, both in sales and building out that product and revenue, but also put some customer support resources, hire a, a country manager, a lot because of the talent that we could find in this market, and then also the access into Asian markets and just having a presence on this side of the world. How do you choose the people who are surveyed and in the sense do you invite them in or do you you've got a client comes in and says I need to know about the shoe industry sure so I'll let me step back and explain how we've recruited all the people to take surveys every day as I had mentioned there's more than two million people that will take a survey today there will be at least two million people that will go answer a bunch of questions and submit their survey to one of our millions of customers. When they finish that survey, they will see a page that says, hey, thank you for taking that survey. If you'd like to sign up to take more surveys to benefit charity, click here and you can register to receive surveys. Every time you get a survey, we'll donate 50 cents to the charity of your choice. So that's our recruitment model. So we've got all of this traffic coming in every day. And in Australia, we have close to a thousand people a day, a week actually, that will sign up to join to take more surveys. In the United States, we have have close to 20,000 people a week that will sign up to take surveys. So when we have customers that, that come to us and say, hey, you know, I'd like to survey um, mothers that have a child under 10 in the household. What we as do, specific as that? Yes, as specific as that. We know, we know a lot of information about the people that have signed up to take surveys because we ask them their postal code, their gender, age. Um, and we progressively learn more and more about them over time so that if someone came in and said, I'd like to target uh, mothers with a kid under the age of 10, we can actually go look and search our database and say how many people fit that criteria, um, how hard is it to find for us, and that's sort of how we price it. The harder it is to reach them, um, the higher our individual price per respondent goes. And then we actually target and send out a survey to those people. Um, and so we can, our, our goal is to deliver, to deliver results as quickly as possible, typically in less than two days. So if someone wanted 100 moms with kids under the age of 10, uh, we would go tell them how many we could find. Um, they would typically want maybe 100, 200, or potentially even 1,000 for a big study. Um, and then we would actually invite those people to take a survey and finish that project within two days. How do, how do you handle, or is there a possibility of sort of pressure groups forming a, a group within a survey, special interest, and maybe, you know, it's the day of Facebook and Twitter. So... 
um, let me know if I'm not answering this the right way, but I think for a lot of um, a lot of customers that use the SurveyMonkey platform will distribute their uh, survey onto their Facebook page, um, especially if it is a special special interest and they have a lot of followers. Um, that's a great mechanism for getting free respondents, leveraging your own traffic source and getting people that care about your issues. Um, and so that's how a lot of our customers actually gather feedback. We do have actually a, a way to deploy a survey directly onto the Facebook platform. And I think that's that's a fantastic way to get feedback from your own community. The nice thing with our with the audience product is we can actually get you you can use that group of people to answer a question. Then you can say, I want to talk to people who are not my affinity group. I maybe get a representative sample of Australians or of people that live in the Melbourne area, Sydney area, those kind of things. And so that's sort of where our product has said, look, if you're making a decision based on your own database and your own affinity groups, that's excellent. But you might want to also look at the views of others. The business model of SurveyMonkey, how does that work? So our core business model, which we look at as our freemium subscription model, which for us means it's free to try and there's a free version of the product. So a lot of people sign up, you know, tens of thousands of people sign up every day to create surveys and they can use the free version of our product. Um, you can create up to 10 questions. You can review up to 100 responses and use a lot of those tools and features. There are certain things that we limit to our paid packages. So if you were to get 1,000 responses and wanted to export the data or use advanced logic features, we have a few different paid packages. And so customers typically pay somewhere between 20 and $30 a month to access the service or a lot of people use our annual packages which are generally between 200 and 700 dollars a year and that allows people unlimited access to all the features as many responses as they can collect as many emails as they want to send out um, so our business model is uh, is this freemium model where we have subscribers um, that pay an annual or a monthly subscription on the audience side uh, for customers who want to access a group of respondents someone might say hey I, I want to access a hundred mothers with kids under the age of, or a thousand mothers with kids under the age of 10 uh, we would price that on a per respondent basis so if that that may cost something like three to four dollars per response and so that would be a three to four thousand dollar project that someone would run with us your part of your business though is is data analysis as well isn't it that that will be a different branch of the company so our our core platform and I think it is probably one of the biggest strengths of SurveyMonkey is we have a great set of analysis tools uh, I look at analysis as probably the hardest stage of a survey Creating a survey is um, is not easy. Creating great questions, great answer options, making sure it's methodologically sound, that is very difficult. Fielding the survey has its own challenges. We really help with that with the audience product. Um, but what do you do when you get the data back? How do you actually draw insights out of it? How do you understand if results are statistically significant? Our survey tool and platform is really built to really get you way up the curve. We have a lot of filtering tools where you can, at the click of a button, say, I want to look at only people that answered yes to this question. Um, you can compare people that answered yes versus people that answered no, different genders, things like that. So our analysis tools were really built for uh, both the novice and the expert to do advanced features, to really give people a quick snapshot. And we have built-in charts that can be customized for presentation purposes. And then we also have a lot of export formats that uh, people can take it into Excel. They can take it into PowerPoint now. They can take it into advanced statistical tools. And that's sort of our, our bread and butter is really helping people with that. 
But is, it, is that sort of data only for data scientists or can it be accessed by anyone? Anyone who runs a survey can see the data. Anyone who, anyone who runs a survey can export the data. Our data is very private to whichever the customer has run the project. So we want to make sure that it is a big part of our job to safeguard customers. Um, the survey data they've run, which may have information on their own customer bases, names, emails, things like that. So it's accessible to... Um, to our own customers, it can be shared if they have if they want to provide a share link to someone that's helping them analyze the data. Um, but I would say it's not um, when you start looking at survey data, it's not just a data scientist that can make sense of it. Um, we see a lot of startups use the product. We see a lot of you know students in entry level marketing, philosophy, sociology courses that can really use our tools to um, to get to get great insights out of data. So, what do you see ahead for SurveyMonkey? What's next? The world is next. We're uh, we're here in Australia because we're opening up um, one of our first international offices. We have some folks right now in Dublin um, as an operational center for Europe. We're opening uh, a London office as well and looking at Japan as a market. But I think SurveyMonkey's international growth um, is a huge focus area for the company. Um, we've been um, hiring a lot of people here in Australia. We look to hope to get over potentially over 30 people by the end of next year. Um, and we really want to just make sure that our product is localized for all the different markets. Uh, mobile is a huge focus area for the company. Um, we've launched an iOS app um, and some developer kits for different parts of people that want to embed feedback into their applications. Um, so that will be something that we just continue to push on it as the world changes and a certain market shift uh, or even skip PCs and laptops. It's a place where we want to be on the, the cutting edge of innovation there. Um, and then as I look for our audience product, um, we're really looking to, to help people get even first, show new use cases, help people get even further along in their analysis. So if someone comes to us and says, hey, I want to run a brand study, how do I do that? That we have some, some great quick ways to get into a market. We've got a product called the Brand Pulse, which is something new that we just basically said, if you want to understand brand and competitive insights, we actually have a packaged offering that can help you get up to speed very, very quickly. So a lot of things like that of um, just thinking, trying to get two steps ahead of where customers even think they may want to go um, so that we can really help their decision process. The change in retail, for example, moved to mobile. This, these would have been quite big opportunities for SurveyMonkey. Yeah, I think the way we want, we want to be a way that retailers and any customer can get feedback very quickly. Um, I mean, I've seen it over the last several years where you used to go into a restaurant and reserve a table. And now there's an iPad there that you pick and choose your spots and things like that. Uh, a lot of you'll see on a receipt from a, a fast food restaurant or any kind of restaurant that might say, hey, go to this web address and take a survey and tell us how we did. Those are the kind of places where SurveyMonkey can actually be embedded into that iPad experience to actually locate a person and let them give feedback right there, which is going to help the restaurant just do a better job, incorporate that feedback. But I think a lot of these industries is where SurveyMonkey was built to help play. And that's where we want to put the tools in the hands of, of not just ourselves, but those companies and then other developers who are developing solutions for retailers. So we don't need to be... Um, we don't need to be building every kind of solution. We have a lot of APIs and different um, kits that will help uh, other companies embed our solution into their platform and software so that we can maybe be the feedback engine and they can be um, the part that's actually dealing with retailers and dealing with the consumers. So SurveyMonkey could in, in fact be everywhere? We hope so. We'd like, we'd like to be, and I mean, we are a platform and that's what we want to be is a platform for conducting feedback and all the tool sets for doing that and all those help tips along the way, how to create a good survey, uh, but also be the engine that drives things so that any, any company and any developer could use us. Brent Jadoba, thank you very much. Thanks, Brent.
Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, at least uh, Australian productivity might be improved by companies knowing what the heck's going on in there. Absolutely, their absolutely. I, I would actually recommend it to anyone wanting to set up venture to go to SurveyMonkey. And now our economist, uh, Stephen Kakoulis, he's going to be talking to us all about yesterday's GDP figures. And Australia's coming in at 3.1, but he doesn't know how sustainable it is. And the reality is uh, our living standards have been falling. Indeed, incomes have been falling too, real incomes. That's right, that's right. You, you have to go back to the days of the Badana Republic when it was last like this. Exactly right, yeah. And of course, this is underlying the government's um, pullback from changing superannuation rules. It's also underlying all the battles going on over the budget. Yeah, yeah that's a big Battle. But anyway, let's now talk to Stephen Coolis and see what analysis he has. Stephen Coolis, uh, you looked at Australia's growth figures today. GDP's grown 3.1%. What's your assessment of it? Yeah, pretty much as expected. The economy in annual terms did grow at 3.1% in real terms. Uh, for the quarter, it was 0.5%. So pretty much bang on expectations. Yeah, the quarterly numbers are always volatile. The prior quarter was around 1%. So in a sense, you could say, well, the economy slowed in the June quarter. But, you know, we know the numbers are volatile. You know, the export volumes, the inventory levels, which this quarter detracted quite a lot from GDP, yeah, tend to be volatile. I prefer to look at the, the annual figure and perhaps the trend in, in, in quarterly terms. And that's uh, saying to me that the economy is growing you know, maybe close to trend, maybe just a touch below. But, um, you know, if you can continue to run 3% GDP, if we can do that for the next couple of years, we'll be doing well. Right. So what's driving it? Look, this time around, it seems to be, well, I'll use the annual figures because, again, the quarterly figures can be quite different. Export growth, export volumes, I should say, are very strong. While they were weak in the quarter, they were strong through the year. We've got um, housing construction, housing investment picking up, adding nicely to growth. We've also got um, household consumption. While, again, in the quarter it was weak, but through the year it's actually been you know, reasonably robust. So they're the dynamics that are helping the economy. The ones that are dampening the economy, if you like, um, is subdued growth in uh, government expenditure. No surprises there with both Commonwealth and state governments you know, keeping a tight rein on expenditure. So we've got this dynamic unfolding where we're um, moving from, if you like, an investment boom. Investment was weak, I should say, too. Sorry. Um, we're going from an investment boom, particularly in mining, to one where it is focusing more on household consumption, more on um, uh, dwelling investment and capital expenditure is likely to remain pretty soft for the next year at least, possibly longer. The question is how sustainable is this? I mean, uh, yeah. there were, there's projections now, that the, I mean, the iron ore price is slipping and uh, there's projections today that it could drop to as low as $75 and uh, that would be disastrous uh, for this it would, economy. It would hit the economy really hard. Now, okay, there's more to the Australian economy than iron ore, but that is, if you like, the um, side of the economy, if you like, that gives us the extra cream on the cake, you know, it's the extra impetus. And the fact we're now down in the 86 level, I think uh, the Chinese market's open today and it's down another, about another 80, 90 cents a tonne, so we're possibly below 86 dollars a tonne as we speak. Um, that's not good news for the economy. And at a time, too, when things like uh, coal prices are falling, even gold, it's, while it's not a major export of Australia, it is sort of in the top five in terms of um, uh, export earners. We do produce gold. Um, that the whole commodity cycle seems to be just this grinding, grinding lower. And in fact, if we looked at the national accounts, which just came out, the terms of trade actually fell about 4% in the quarter, down about... Uh, 
uh, over 20% from the peak three years ago. So while they're still at quite high levels, the fall is now quite large and it shows no signs of um, easing up. If we were to see another, I don't know, 5% fall over the next 12 months, possibly 10% over the next uh, two years, then that would take a lot of the income growth off the Australian economy. And that's the challenge that the Reserve Bank, Treasury and government are confronting, this fall in the terms of trade, which uh, even though the numbers today are quite good, it's, it's still continuing to shave off, if you like, some of the better news on the economy. So do you see the iron ore price falling further? Look, that's a tough call. I think we've got a combination of factors. First of all, the Chinese economy, while it's growing, probably has less commodity dependency as it's urbanising, the middle class is getting richer. And the other thing, of course, to remember is that other countries are producing iron ore. We're not the Lone Rangers, and while we have fantastic relations with the Chinese, we um, have a different grade of iron ore, which is well-received and great contracts in place, um, it's important to note that there are other producers. So to the extent that we've got other iron ore producers around the world in Central Asia, South America, Africa coming on stream, I think we've got a supply-side response, and that's going to continue to pressure the iron ore price. So, look... Hard to make a call whether we get to 75 or whether we rebound back up to 100. But I think um, in very general terms, the pressure's certainly to the downside for the next uh, 6 to 12 months. Given that pressure on the downside, what do you see that doing to our GDP figures? We saw it in the recent RBA uh, forecast for the economy out to, the, uh, out to 2016, so basically the next 18 months. Um, GDP is going to be below trend, I think, based on that, in a very low inflation environment. Interestingly, the GDP deflated, without wanting to get too much into it, the GDP deflated was, ne- uh, was flat in the quarter. So we've got no nominal growth in the economy, even though real GDP was quite good, nominal, nominal GDP was actually flat in the June quarter. So that's just taking off the income effect. So I think what it means for the economy over the next year or two is reasonable sort of growth, but not that extra growth that we'd love to see, particularly when we now appear to be confronting a bit of an issue on the unemployment rate, which, of course, last month jumped to 6.4%. Yeah, these sort of dynamics are slowly coming through the economy where it appears that, on average, the economy is just underperforming what it could be doing. That's why the RBA's got interest rates at very low levels and the government's still having trouble you know, getting back to surplus. The economy's just not strong enough. And uh, if, of course, the... Uh iron ore price does fall to 75, you can forget about the government uh, reaching any surplus. Uh, yes, that indeed. Indeed. If the iron ore price falls to 75, that implies that you know, there are other issues going on in the commodities market too, you know, things like coal, as we mentioned, because if you're not, you don't have to um, melt the iron ore, you don't need the energy to do it, so coal prices continue to weaken. Um, yes, that, that's the problem. So I think the budget and Mr Hockey's sort of endeavours to get uh, compromise on the budget are really trying just to shore up the deterioration of the budget. Look, we get the mid-year economic fiscal outlook around November, December. We don't have a set date, but it'll be around about that time. My guess is that, firstly, with the compromises that he's been forced to make with people like Palm United Party and others, that's hit the bottom line of the budget. It's made a bigger, the deficit bigger. But also I think the economic parameters, not just um, the iron ore price and commodity prices, but we know that uh, wages growth is very weak. We've got the weakest wages growth since the data were first collected. So again, if you're not getting a wage increase, you're probably not paying much PAYG income tax. So the income tax collections, I dare say, when we see the budget update, will be pretty weak as well. The other issue, of course, is consumer confidence. That's down, and so that would imply demand will be down. That will, hit, that will affect GDP growth as well, won't it? Indeed. The consumer, well, the consumer's actually in pretty good shape in terms of house prices, the stock market going up. So in a sense, you could say consumers are in 
in pretty good shape. But the biggest issue for consumers is this consumer caution. Firstly, we mentioned the jobs numbers before. If you're unemployed, if this unemployment pickup that we've seen over the last 12 months you know, continues, um, then of course people will be worried about their job security. So that's going to be a negative uh, influence on sentiment and a negative influence on spending. The other negative on consumer sentiment, I guess, is, is this wages issues, issue that I mentioned. If wages growth is very low, then of course your ability to spend more money is severely constrained. You're just not getting that cash flow into your you know, household bank account, if you like, to allow you to, to boost your spending. You'll be okay, but that extra growth in spending just, just probably isn't going to be there. Now, you, you, you referred before to uh, compromises that the government had to make with the Palmer United Party affecting the budget. I noticed yesterday with that deal on the uh, mining tax, for example, it's added uh, $6.5 billion to the deficit, which is, I mean, I worked out that's something like 10,833 times the mining tax. Yes, that's right. The, um, uh, the mining tax the last quarter that it existed only collected six hundred and something thousand dollars, whatever it was. And that's right. Up, as you said, as you said, six six point five billion over the forward estimates. Look, um, you know, I think I think politics rather than policy is winning on that score. You know, the mining tax was meant to be a long run tax that when we did have mining profits that were at very high levels, it would collect revenue, and when mining profits fell, it wouldn't collect much revenue. And as we just discussed, the terms of trade are falling, and uh, that impacted negatively on the um, on the current level of uh, mining tax receipts. But I think the compromise, you know, more worryingly, and without getting to the nitty-gritty of the actual policies specifically, but looking at the bottom-line aggregate measures on the budget, if you've got this $6.5 billion compromise to get rid of the mining tax, if you've got economic parameters with weak wages growth, the fall in the terms of trade, the still very strong level of the Australian dollar hurting uh, company profits and then tax receipts to the government, I dare say, hard to put a hard number on it, but I dare say the government, when they're looking at their up-to-date budget numbers, have lost you know, somewhere between, I don't know, 3 to $5 billion a year over the forward estimates. So over the four, year, four years of the forward estimates, it's probably something between 10 and $20 billion. Hard to pinpoint that number um, from, this, from this position, but it's going to be a significant deterioration of the budget when we see that in the uh, mid-year update in a couple of months. And uh, what would that mean for the next budget after that? Well, that's the dilemma. Uh, this is, you know, it's tough being in government. Uh, you've got this trade-off between wanting to get to surplus, and, and that's a worthy objective when the economy is doing well. But if we're right, and our discussion about the economy just being a little bit below trend, do you want to really impose a tight budget and one that takes money out of the economy, either through less government spending or more tax hikes, when your economy is already weak. If you do that, you actually get a bit of a drag on GDP because, by definition, you're taking money out of the economy one way or the other. So the next budget in May will be a really difficult one for Mr Hockey. It's one where um, you know he's got to weigh up the, the growth side of the economy, the job side, the unemployment rate, versus um, uh, the political objective, I suppose you could call it, of wanting to get back to a budget surplus. So all up, uh, GDP figures are strong, but the question is how sustainable is it going to be? Yeah, the GDP figures are, are, are solid to strong. 3% plus is always nice to see on your GDP numbers. You'd, you'd take that any day of the week, I guess. The question, yeah, as you rightly say, is can that momentum be continued for the next, uh, well, the next year? Uh, the RBA doesn't think so. Treasury doesn't think so. And I think the financial markets don't think so because they're, in fact, pricing in the possibility still that the next move in interest rates will be down. They're not doing it with a lot of conviction at this stage because the RBA rhetoric is that they don't want to 
cut to soon. But I think um, uh, when push comes to shove, if we were to see an interest rate move in the next few months, it would probably be down. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's uh, 3.1 is pretty good. It's a little bit up, not much. But, um, you know, he, he's still a bit pessimistic, I think, isn't he? Yeah, we don't know how sustainable it is, as he says. So, you know, with the iron ore price falling, consumer confidence is down. We just don't know. No, and China's slowing as well. So maybe India's the white, the white hope. We'll see what Abbott gets out of there. And now, Leon, the news. Gary, first of all, uh, China's crucial manufacturing sector actually fell significantly in August. China's government officials' uh, purchasing managing index, which measures the health of factory activity, fell for the first time time since February from a two-year high of 51.7 in July to a reading of 51.1 in August. And meanwhile, an alternative index fell to 50.2 in August, down from 18-month high of 51.7. And that's the weakest reading in three months. And that all of that suggests that the economy, Chinese economy is slowing more than we expected. Possibly we'll see a boost in uh, Chinese real estate spending in Australia to hedge their money. But, you know, good news from the US. Manufacturing expansion revved up in August, According to the a survey by the Institute for Supply Management, the ISM's Manufacturing Purchasing Managing Index increased to 59.0 in August. That's up from 57.1, and that's the highest level since March 2011. Meanwhile, the other interesting piece of news is it looks like Greece is moving out of a recession. The latest figures from Greece's statistics service, Elstat, for the April-June period showed the Greek economy contracted slightly more than expected in the second quarter of a year, but it remains on course to emerge from a six-year recession in the coming months. And they showed the gross domestic product uh, contracted by an annual rate of 0.3%. That's slightly worse than a previous estimate of 0.2%, but not much. And it's the best performance since the fourth quarter of 2008, when the global financial crisis started. So they're getting a bit of oxygen. Now, to Australia, and of course, the big news, Gary, the big news for the week was the way the government crunched that deal with the Palmer United Party to repeal the mining tax. And this is where it's interesting. As a compromise, it will slow down dramatically the phasing up of the superannuation guarantee towards 12%. It will freeze it at the current 9.5% until 2021. It will then increase it at 0.5% a year after that until it hits 12% in 2025. And that breaks in another election promise of no adverse or unexpected changes to superannuation. And to get the support of the PUEB, the government will keep until after the next election three of the eight spending measures attached to the mining tax. So it's going to keep the school kids bonus until December 2016, the income support bonus until the same date, and the low income super contribution until June 30, 2017. The other five measures will be abolished immediately. They are actually lost carry back provisions for small business, reducing the instant asset write-off threshold from 5000 to 1000 They're freezing the super guarantee, axing uh, vehicle acceleration depreciation and axing a geothermal exploration tax break. Finance Minister Matthias Cormann reckons that's going to add to a budget deficit of 6.5 billion dollars, Gary. And you know, I worked out that's 10,088 times the 
mining tax revenue <laughs> for the quarter of June. Yeah, which was, I think, a whole 600,000 years. So, I mean, a 6.5% increase to our deficits. So you can forget any surplus for now. And what's also interesting is that, of course, the mining tax was supposed to fund the cost of government of increasing superannuation at 12%. And the government's changes will halt those increases, won't restart until 2021. So the target of 12% isn't reached until 2025. And super industry leaders say Australian workers will retire poorer because of the change. And growth in the nation's $1.8 billion reinvestment pool will be significantly hampered as a consequence of a deal. And in the broad side of the government, the Financial Services Council said Australians would have $128 billion less in their superannuation savings by 2025. And the bottom line of that is that the government will have more tax income because uh, there's more money in their pocket. Well, we'll see what happens, see, see how that pans out. Anyway, the, uh, the other interesting piece of news was the RBA kept the official cash rate on hold at a record low of 2.5%. RBA Governor Glenn Stevens said the RBA's view is that the most prudent course of action is likely to be a period of stability in interest rates. The GDP figures, as we discussed with Stephen Koulis, uh, they have come in at uh, 3.1%. Uh, it grew a seasonally just at 0.5%. But the full-year number still remains below the long-term growth trend rate of 3.25%, and that's important. Anything over three is pretty good. What's interesting is that the Australian current account deficit widened in June, broadly in line with forecasts. According to the ABS, official data showed the nation's trade deficit widened a seasonally adjusted 76% to 13.7% billion dollars and but what's interesting really interesting this week is what's happening in the housing market gary we've got a boom going on building approvals more rose more than expected according to the abs they rose a season adjusted 2.5 percent to 16,318 that compares to 15,659 in june housing prices posted their strongest winter gain in seven years according to the rp data core logic hedonic home value index of australian capital city dwelling that rose 1.1 percent in August and stripping out seasonality and price movements, home values across Australia's eight capital cities climbed at 15% annualised clip over three months ending August 31. And that brought the total gain over June, July and August to 4.2%. Annual growth in prices came at 10.9%, more than double the gain of 12 months uh, to 2013. And the reality is, Gary, house prices have appreciated 283% since 1995. There are signs that it might be um, declining a bit. Western Australia house prices have started to drop. Nevertheless, ANZ Chairman David Konsky has warned Australia's booming housing prices can't go on forever and the market's going to experience a correction. And the former Future Fund Chairman said ANZ and all the big banks were very aware of history when it came to financial lending in the residential mortgage market. And raising agency Moody's has issued a warning on home lending in Australia saying the rise in higher risk loans is credit negative for Australia's banks. And Moody's Senior Credit Officer Ilya Serov said the latest statistics from the Australian Prudential Regulation Authorities highlights an increase in investment loans and interest-only loans, and that poses a threat to the banking sector. And APRA's data discovered the proportion of investment loans as a percentage of new loans jumped to 37.9%. So 37.9% of loans are for investments. And interest-only loans made up 43.2% of new loans. That's up from 35.7%. That's a big rise, Leon. And also, we just came out of the profit season, and according to the ABS, company gross 
operating profits fell in the June quarter, coming in well below analysts' expectations. They lost 6.9% in the quarter seasonal adjusted compared with 3.1% in the March quarter. But retailers' hopes of a good Christmas have driven the number of companies expecting profit growth in the coming months to a 10-year high. Of 800 businesses surveyed by Dun & Bradstreet, 40% expect their profit in the final three months of 2014 to be higher than the same period a year ago. Uh, that sent Dun & Bradstreet's Profit Expectations Index to its highest level in a decade. Some bad news, price of iron ore, which is our biggest earner, has lost 35% this year to levels around $87 a tonne mark. According to CSLSA, it's got a lot further to fall. Firm Shanghai-based analyst Ian Roper sent a note this week that $75 a tonne can be expected in the back half of next year. And such a drop in price is going to put pressure on Australian mid-tier miners like Atlas Iron, which has a break-even price in the low 80 range, and Fortescue Metals Group and BC Iron would also face stress with break-evens of around $70 a tonne. The big boom is well and truly over. That's right. And consumer confidence has taken a step back amid concerns about household finance and growing unemployment confidence fell 0.8% among consumers in the final week of August also this coincides with Coles announcing it's cutting 438 jobs yeah just adding to the layers of rust on the Victorian uh, expectation and of course Australia's manufacturing sector slipped back into negative territory in August after recording its first positive result in eight months that's according to the Australian industry group the AI group's performance of manufacturing index retreated 3.4% to 47.3 points in the month as competition from imports, the high Australian dollar and caution among businesses weighed. Now, of course, a read above 50 shows the sector is expanding. A print below 50 shows it's contracting. It's, uh, it's coming in at 47.3, so it's uh, it's contracting. It is, quite, quite rapidly. And in look. July, the index was 50.7, so it's gone down from last month. Yeah, well down. Anyway, that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And next week, we're talking to... We're talking to Draw Nadler. He is the... Sales and Strategic Alliances Manager of Cellrox. He's talking to us all the way from Boston. And uh, they're very interested in the Australian business. He's talking to us all about data protection. Now, how people are picking up data and uh, how that's a, how that's in, endangering company. Yeah. Uh, so the whole BYD philosophy. That's right. And of course, the most dramatic example of that has been the uh, Uh, nude celebrities on the web recently. So that's it for this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.